back in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, 14th chapter, verse 18. Every single one of us here probably have a story about our salvation. Oftentimes we say things like, I was raised in a Christian home. I was taken to church. Some people may even say I was dragged to church. And we paint the picture that everything was picture perfect. And that we came to the realization that we personally needed a salvation experience as a young child. And so that happens. We make a profession of faith somewhere in our single-digit years. Then we're raised in church. Then we graduate high school, and we go out on our own, and there's this held breath. Will we indeed continue in the life of the church, or will we kind of be absorbed into the culture around us? That's generally the way the world sees the Christian experience. I have an atheist friend, and I do say that, not in any kind of sarcasm, uh, but he believes big Christians raise little Christians. In other words, you're raised in it, and then when you get older, you continue it and you pass it to the next generation. And that's what he's observed. He, uh, he's a Vietnam vet, and so he's a little bit sour on uh, faith because of some of the things that he's seen and some of the displays of carnal activity among professing Christians. But I want to talk this morning about something that is real honest. There are a few people gathered here on this uh, first day of 2023, and there's perhaps a few people who might listen to this uh, on the internet or who knows where the sermon may go. Uh, but it is uh, very personal to whoever may be listening. I want to talk about the issue of generational curses. Do they exist? Is there, in fact, situations that are passed on to the next generation? Numbers, the 14th chapter, verse 18, says, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Whoa. This is not just an obscure reference in Scripture. There are other places there's a couple of references I'll share with you during the delivery of this sermon. That there is indeed a factor of your sins being passed on to your children and to their children. And let's count it. And their children. That a line could be marked by the consequences and the impact of sin. This alone, the fact that this is in Scripture, should cause us to want to search the Scriptures. We find 
stories in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, where we're given entire family histories, and we can see that when sin happens in a family unit, often by a patriarch, that those sins follow to the next generation and to the next generation. Even in the holy family, if you will, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we see that a climate of sin takes place and a particular bondage to a particular sin follows to the next generation. And if, if nothing is done, it follows to the next generation and the consequences of that. Uh, let me remind you of Abraham, of Ishmael, and Isaac. Remember, those are the two sons. And remember that Ishmael was the product of Abraham and Sarah uh, going around God's instructions and producing a child through Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. And this caused a problem in their family unit. Ended up being that God instructed that Hagar and Ishmael be sent away. That's the kind of stuff you watch on television, see on the news, and you go, how despicable and how, how bad that is. Just think about what Hagar and Ishmael face in the future. Think about this family can not be not impacted by this very dark skeleton in the closet. And you know what? It, it far exceeds that this creates many of the enemies that Israel has in the future based of the lineage coming from Ishmael. In fact, even today in the Middle East, it is still a factor that Islam looks to Abraham as their father. The Jewish faith, Judaism, looks to Abraham as his father. And they look to the territory of Jerusalem and the Holy Land as a family dispute. Sins have followed for generations and generations. And this is even after Abraham has been forgiven. The impact is still there. You know, we just read that verse a few minutes ago, and you'll notice it's in the book of Numbers. That's early in the Old Testament. It's during a foundational period to the covenant law that God has with Israel. But what is its significance for today, you might ask? Well, let me mention a few sins that have a tendency to hang around when they are present in a family and impacts everyone. Now, this is not a completely exhaustive list. This is a smaller list, and it's intended to give you a visual and for your mind, even as you're sitting in the pew or listening, that you say, hey, in my family this happened, or a family I know about this happened. Did you know divorce has a tendency to follow from generation to generation. Divorced families, broken families, lead to people who go out and establish divorce and broken families. Now, that's not a condemnation. That's just a fact. Broken families lead to broken families, and that will continue to generations into the future. 
substance abuse. My father was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. My children are alcoholic. It has a tendency to stick around. Substance abuse, addiction follows from generation to generation to generation. The issue of incest. We don't want to talk about that. We particularly don't want to talk about it from the pulpit. But that is a matter of fact that when an incestuous relationship takes place, and it's in the Bible, by the way, it impacts the family, it disintegrates the good fellowship, and it leads to brokenness and division, and the family line is completely impacted for generations. Poverty. We can see that real easy. Born in poverty, if something doesn't happen, the next generation follows in poverty. Sort of like what I do, uh, as you know, full time uh, as uh, an income maintenance worker at the Department of Social Services. There have been generations who have been on services, financial aid for generations to generations. You got uh, domestic abuse where people are fighting in a family, anger issues. You got your daddy's temper, you got your mama's temper. A depressive spirit, where people are depressed, dependent, isolated, hermits. We see that. That it follows from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. Bigotry. It's taught, it's learned. It's passed on to the next generation and impacts the next generation. Greedy, greed, jealousy, vengefulness, promiscuity. That's when people have multiple sexual partners. We see that once a family is stained with this, it follows to the next generation. And all we have to do is look in here and we see that it's true. And then if you look around at people that you know, you say, hey, that principle is true. And if you get real honest, some of that's present in your family too. You know, I talked about some big sins. There are other sins too, like jealousy. Pride, obesity. You just, just, just think about it. That this sin has got in the family line, and it continues and continues. You, you don't have to do anything to promote it. It just continues. You could be real passive about it. You can deny it. But it still continues. It has a life of its own. I don't think anybody will stand up and argue with me on this. David, I, I don't know the answers to all this, but I do know that you're probably right. The real question is, and I'm not a physician, 
I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm a pastor. And I have a verse of scripture in front of me. And a little bit of biblical knowledge. And a whole lot of experience with this curse thing in a family. Is it environmental? Does it simply mean that it just happens because that's the environment we're raised in, so we, we go and establish our own families, we, we don't know how to create any different environment, so we create the very same environment we grew up in, and we raise children in it, and they go out and do the same thing? Is it totally environmental? I was raised around alcoholics, and when I got older, I was young, and so I tried some of these things, and now I'm an alcoholic. And now we're into two generations, and then so a third generation happens. Is it completely environmental? Is it genetic? You know, some people believe that alcoholism, addiction, all sorts of things are genetic. That there's something wrong with you genetically. It's a gene that's passed, and then it mutates and goes to another generation. I told you I'm not a physician. We hear this a lot in the issue of mental illness. You know, we had some crazy relatives in our family, and look, we're crazy too. And I know this is a lot of blunt conversation, but that's the way you deal with Scripture. So is it environmental? Is it, is it genetic? Is there a scientific reason for this? And then something that I do have a little more expertise in, is it spiritual? Is it demonic? Uh, that's where I lean heavily. Yeah. There's a spirit. Satan realizes that he has a foothold in a family. And he establishes himself there. And he just continues to hit at this weakness. And after all, if there's sin in the the patriarch and the matriarch of the family, if this is present in their life and unaddressed and they're in bondage, they don't have good influence over the children or the grandchildren. And so Satan comes in and he just says, this is the area I attack. Yes. Yeah, there's some environmental situations here. There's certainly perhaps some genetic things. But there's also this realm of demonic influence. And you're hearing this from a Baptist pulpit. Whoa. I'm kind of tired of hearing people giving excuses for their sins by simply saying, I'm a victim. I was abused. Now I'm an abuser. I, I was raised in an alcoholic environment, so now I am an alcoholic myself. But do I have to live it out to its harsh conclusion and pass it on to the next generation? Now, there's one thing that we can say, and and, and we want to be true to the text. We also want to be true to our experiences. We want to be true to the whole counsel of Scripture. You didn't construct this curse. Remember, we go all the way back to Adam and Eve. 
they partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so sin becomes present, they're out of the garden, and it becomes a curse on their family. What happens with the first generation after Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel? What happened? Murder. So could Cain say, I can't help it? You know, Mama and Daddy have been mad at each other ever since we got kicked out of the garden. You know, we, we went from living in a very nice place to we're living in poverty now, out here working by the sweat of our brow. I couldn't help it. It's just what happened. No, we, we can't declare victimhood. You know, if, if you become a, a, a victim to the sin that is present in your family and the generational curse that's on your family, if you participate in it, you will face judgment yourself and you can't say, Mom and Daddy did this to me. You are responsible to deconstruct this. And so as we sit here with this text here today and we sit and we ponder it, we can't go around singing God made me this way. No, we can't say that. I want to say something other. To me, it's a little comical. It's a little comic relief. But there's also some truth in it. Sometimes the curse marries into the family. Hmm. Don't forget that our kids go off and get married. And often... That becomes a disruption in a family, a, a new dynamic. Sometimes they bring a curse with them. Oh, it's starting to get more personal as we unpack this. That a curse that was in another family is now in my family. Now, I wonder why the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. <laughs> Kids don't want to hear that, do they, when, when they're considering about getting married or... Or they don't want to hear all the advice, you know, well, they've got some problems in their family. This is getting deeper. I don't know if I can handle this preaching it. Because it gets personal. But isn't that the way the Bible, reading the Bible is supposed to be? We're supposed to read it and say, hey, you know, if, if, if it lays out something other that reveals something about my life and makes me, forces me to deal with something that I don't want to face but now I do because the text says it. What's this curse thing? And why is this curse continuing to the third and the fourth generation? Hmm. Genesis, the 12th chapter. I'm going to read here a little bit. It should be in your note sheet. I'm going to go back to the very beginning of a family line in Abram. Verse 10 says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. By the way, he's saying this to a woman far past her prime, by the way. She must have been beautiful. Therefore it will happen, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you're my sister, 
that it may be well with me for your sake, that I may live because of you. That's not good in a marriage. (laughs) That's not good at all. Look, we're going to a farm place, and rather than them killing me so they can get you, I need you to tell them that you're my sister. A lie. You say one for survival. Hmm. All right. Genesis 26 chapter. Several chapters away. 25 years. God gets him out of the situation. 25 years later, there was a famine in the land. Besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham, Notice the names changed, meaning this is after he's had the encounter with the Lord. And Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land which I should tell you. Dwell in the land, and I will be with you and bless you. For you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That's God still with him. But 25 years later, he lied again for the same reason. Abraham's marriage was not a good one. Can Can I say that? You say, how, how do you say that? Well, number one, he's lied over and over and over again on his wife to save his own self, his own skin. He's not providing spiritual leadership. When Sarah says, take Hagar, he should have said, that's not God's plan. But he does and willfully has a child. He allows the the dysfunction to go on in his family when there's jealousy between Sarah and Hagar. He's forced to kick her out. We've got a situation here. Abraham is not a good husband. But he's responding to God. Look at Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, verse 20. A simple statement. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. That's in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. This sin that mom and dad, granddaddy, grandmother, uncles, people that marry into the family, a curse that is on a family, we see this being multiplied over and over and over again. They have to stand on their own merit the same way I have to stand on my own merit. But The truth of Scripture is this, that if I do not break this curse in my own life, if I do not 
put it under the blood of Christ, it will continue. It's a spiritual principle. In other words, I will continue to live in it and in the consequences. I will have a tendency to mimic the same sin. It will continue to destroy my life, even though I didn't commit the sin. Unless I break the curse. I break the curse. There are three points on your sermon outline. You cannot control what you've been exposed to by your family line. But you are free to pray for deliverance. You are free to pray for deliverance. Curses are often environmental. That may mean distancing yourself from the sin and those who are committing it. It's often repetitious. It's up to you to break the bondage. You can't control the weather, but you can prepare. You've got to make a decision. Am I going to live this way? Am I going to continue to repeat what my family line has dictated to me is what life's about? The second point is this. The remedy for a family curse can only be found in the spiritual realm. I told you in the beginning I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm none of those things. And maybe I should not comment too much on the things that I don't have the experience with. But the thing I can speak to is the truth. Sin is in the spiritual realm. It is fault in the spiritual realm. There's no pill you can take. There's no therapy that you can do to cope. Certainly, repeating and venting and reflective therapy is not going to help you. It has to be confronted straight on. If it's a spiritual problem, it's a spiritual problem. If it's demonic, it has to be attacked by the grace of the Lord and through prayer. You don't solve spiritual problems any other way. And it's up to you. There's a thing that they do have in psychiatry that is amazing. Uh, it's called a genogram. And on the genogram, you basically sit down with your family tree and it probably takes you and some other of your family members and you kind of outline personality traits, uh, vices, and you just write them down the line. And every time that I have participated in one of these or watched one being done, you see the progression. You see it passes on. In other words, if I don't do anything different, I will repeat the sins of my parents, my lineage. But if I break it, I start something new. We break bondage not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of our children. 
Remember what it was that Joshua said? Remember, Joshua uh, was taking over after Moses. The first thing he said was, Moses is dead. And then he says, now we are going to go conquer and do what God told us to do. And then he makes this statement, right there in the beginning of the book, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He's making a statement. I am breaking this bondage of living a lie, of having no faith, cowardice. I break it. Following the Lord and wherever he leads. This is what he says. We've got to break free for the benefit of our children. The last point is this. The remedy to the curse is a decision to repent and ask for deliverance. And this last phrase is very important. If you are writing this down, don't forget to write this part down. So I'll start over from the beginning. The remedy is a decision to repent and ask for deliverance this very morning. Right here at the first of the year. This morning. It stops here. The cure is repentance. That is a decision to go another way. That's the decision to take away all the baggage, put it in its proper place, and choose to follow. It's, it's dropping the phrase, I can't, and replacing it with the phrase, I will. I'm going to move towards God. I'm moving this way. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. How badly do you want this curse broken? For you and those that follow you. How bad? You know, there are things as I went through my initial list, some of us may actually have felt some relief. He didn't mention my sin. He didn't mention my sin. That's where your inventory comes in. Did you know, this is from research that's available out there, and there may be somebody who hears this eventually because it is being recorded digitally, they're private sins, sin of lust. 50% of men view pornography on the internet. Don't think that doesn't come with a curse? You know, I, I could sit here and list a bunch of things. Anger, bitterness, unforgiveness. You set up a trait. Remember those commercials? This is an older group that's here this morning. Remember those commercials that came on when they first started trying to fight uh, tobacco usage and it shows a little boy walking with the son in his hand and his, his father smoking a cigarette. The little boy picks it up and puts it in his hand. You say, you're not going to preach against smoking. No, I'm not. There are other things we can talk about. But that idea 
is your children watch how you solve problems. They watch what you value and how you prioritize your life. They also know something other than your public face. You got to make a decision. The thing about faith is it's transparent. It's honest before God. The whole point of worship here this morning is this, is that we're, we're coming to God and we say we are imperfect, including the pastor. And we're standing before him and saying, God, there are some things I still haven't let go of in my life. And the thing that I'm coming to terms with this morning is I'm actually passing it on to my children. If I don't face it. If I don't fight it in the spiritual realm. What's repentance? It's a military term, by the way. It means about face. Go a different direction. Head in a path towards God. There are so many things that we allow in our lives that we consider harmless. Are they really harmless? Every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment. The sermon this morning was a chance for spiritual inventory and a dealing with the passage of Scripture. You know, there are things that they say is that uh, oftentimes the father in the home doesn't attend church. Then the children don't. If we can get the father in the home, in church, things begin to change in family life. Children are in church. You know, maybe that's old school for some of us, but it's a fact. One of the things that we often pray for is revival, and that's what we're doing at our church. And I need to remind you, and maybe a little bit of a somatical English lesson, but, you know, revival is taking what's dead and lifeless and bring a spark of joy back, bring a spark of spiritual vitality to take what was cold and once again stir the embers and it gets hot and it begins to burn. Revival is when it begins happening first among us. And that's when we, we break new ground spiritually. When we begin confessing and repenting our sins. When, when we start moving to deeper parts of our spiritual walk. And then that makes us more eager to share our faith. It makes us more eager to disciple the people that will eventually come here. It gives us a hunger to see the place grow. It gives us a passion uh, that people can detect when they come in here. Maybe that's where we need to begin as a church. Right here on the very first Sunday. It's a time of personal prayer. Maybe there's something that God's telling you that what you need is not a resolution. 
It's repentance. And if it's a spiritual battle, which we kind of defined it already is here, it's not going to be done by just willpower. It's going to be done when you're walking in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. Most people break their resolutions because while their intentions are good, even Jesus said it, the flesh is weak. 